Well, here we are. It's the month of December, and uh, we'll start out our first uh, first service in December with the 86th Psalm, a prayer of David. Bow down your ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am holy. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who, all those who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will cast call upon you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. And I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy toward me. And you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, the proud have risen against me. And a mob of violent men have sought my life. And have not set you before that, and have not set you before them, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. O turn to me and have mercy on me, give your strength to your servant, and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Glorious heavenly Father. Thank you for your word, which is so precious. And thank you for giving us guidance in how to praise you because we often forget to do this and the, a right way to do it. But reading your word back to you, I know blesses your heart. May you be glorified in this uh, service today. May each person here receive an abundance of your spirit and be blessed. And uh, Lord, help my words to be satisfactory to you, pleasing to you, and uh, in accordance with your word and not deviating from your glorious precepts. Heavenly Father, thank you for the month of December and the beautiful weather you've given us. Thank you for the fellowship and family you've given to us. And we look forward to uh, just good things ahead in the month that's ahead of us. We just want to praise you. We want to give you glory, honor, majesty, all that you're due because of what you've done for us in your creation and especially through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his cross. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And thank you for your precious word. How we love you and how we praise you. And all this we say in the exalted name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, we have just a few announcements today. Um, as always, first thing I always say is we're looking for inviters of others. Anybody that uh, knows somebody that would like to attend Church on the Beach, please uh, think about them throughout the week and uh, ask them to come on out. And... Um, as always, I mentioned that uh, we have baptism as an option here. If anybody has never been baptized after accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's a picture of what he has done in us by being buried with him through uh, the, the grave under the water is a picture of being buried with him and then being raised to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, if anybody wants to be baptized any day of the week or any day of the year, no matter how cold or how you know big the waves are, I'll get you out there and we'll do that. And, um, of course, I have a few flyers left before I print some new ones. And uh, those will probably be out in a week or so. And uh, today is the 52nd sermon in Genesis. And uh, 
So that means we started just before the new year, I guess, because there's only 52 weeks in a year. But anyway, 52nd sermon in Genesis. And um, I'd like to remember, as always, there's just a few more weeks left of Paul and Elaine uh, Stoll, who are out in um, Japan as missionaries, and they should be home here shortly. They're winding down their time. Please remember them in prayer in the week ahead. And uh, also uh, that they have a good and safe trip back because they're going to go through China and do a couple other things, and then they'll be up north for a while, and eventually they'll wind their way back down to Sarasota. And so uh, just please keep them in prayer. And uh, I know that there are people here, as always, I don't think there's ever a week that there isn't somebody that has a physical affliction or a, a, you know, a trial in their life or something that needs prayer. And so remember to pray for other people at Church on the Beach because, uh, uh, you know, if this is where you make your regular church, then this is your uh, place of fellowship. And please remember others in prayer. And, uh, of course, you know, we have prayers on Facebook as friends and, uh, you know, just prayers for our nation and prayers for our leaders. And uh, I just asked kind of respond, uh, have you respond to these things each and every day and to help remind you that they are important, that we uh, remember these type of things in prayer. Anyway, um, we'll go ahead and do this week a New Testament reading, which will be Romans 8, 26 through 39, and uh, then we'll get into another psalm and then into the sermon. Starting at verse 26 in Romans 8, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. And it's funny that came up first verse because um, Today we're going to be talking more about the gifts of the Spirit and how we are filled with the Spirit and uh, some other things. So he says, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This is not speaking about what charismatic churches do, making crazy sounds and, and supposedly speaking in tongues. That is not what that's speaking about. It's saying that when we come before God how often, I'm sure everybody here can testify to this, that you pray and you have no idea what to pray to God. You know something is wrong in your life, something is wrong in the life of other, others, and you're groaning, and you're making these utterances because you can't find the appropriate words. God's Spirit is there intercessing for us. He is searching us out, and he's checking the things that we don't know how to adequately express, and he is turning them around and uh, illuminating our inability to speak to God the Father, through God the Son, so that they can respond to those prayers that we can't even properly make. That has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. So please don't let people try to use that as a verse for you to be rolling around on the beach here and making crazy noises. It has nothing to do with it at all. Verse 27, now he who searches the hearts and minds, uh, the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And that just confirms what I just said about the previous verse. The Holy Spirit, God, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things, listen to this verse, I've quoted this many times and you'll hear it a million more times in your life. Take it to heart. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If you have called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are one of the elect. You are one of the called. And he is working out everything in your life, whether you perceive it as uh, something that he is working out or not. He is taking that bad thing that happened to you, that physical illness that you're facing, that death of a loved one or whatever. And he is working that out for your good. Everything that happens should be a life lesson to you and you should reflect on it. And later, when you turn around, you will see exactly what I'm saying you, to you now. 
yes, we have trials, and yes, we suffer, and we're in misery, but God is working all of those out for your good and for his glory. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, and I, you know, this is going to come in a sermon in about four or five weeks. I'm going to talk about what's called predestination and the elect and who they are and how that works. But this is, Paul speaks about it right here. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God knew before he created the world who would choose Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he predestined them, knowing that, to be conformed to the image of his son. And uh, John says that uh, when he appears, we shall be like him. We really are going to be in the image of Jesus Christ. We're going to be eternal. We're going to be glorious. There won't be any stain of sin in us. And it will be a wondrous time. So just have no fear about the afflictions of the world because these things really, really are coming. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, the people we just talked about, these he also called. He doesn't know something and then not call you to that. He will call you through it. And we'll talk about the calling right here today. And whom he called, he also justified. Justified means we are guilty before God because of our sin. Because of Jesus Christ, he calls out to us, we receive that, we say, I accept Jesus, and he justifies us. He declares us not guilty. Of everything we've ever done wrong, we are no longer guilty before God. We are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and that can never be taken away from us. Not guilty. All right? And those he justified, he also glorified. Believe it or not, it's already done in God's mind. We're not glorified yet. Don't let anybody ever tell you that you can become sinless in this life. You cannot. But one thing that he has done in his mind, God doesn't think in uh, random ways. He, all of his thoughts are immediate and they are intuitive. He has already glorified you. Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 7 says he has already seated us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, in the heavenly places with him. It is done in his mind. All right? So, um, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, anybody? Who can be against us? Nobody. God is for us. He created everything. There's nothing that can stand against his purposes that are going to happen in you. You will be glorified if you've called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Nothing can stop that. All right. Verse 31, what then shall we say? Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What an obvious statement, he says, based on what he's just said. He's given Jesus Christ up. How can we not expect the fullness of what God promises us? Don't be deceived. That may not come in this life. You may prosper or you may not. Don't let people on these Christian TV channels say that if you send them money, you're going to be blessed in return. God doesn't work that way. He is not a cosmic ATM, and I say that week after week. God will bless you. It may be in this life. It may not be, but those blessings will come. Anyway, um, verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's going back and speaking of Satan, who's saying that you're not worthy. You, you've done something that you can lose your salvation now, and you've got this thing in your heart going on saying, God, I have offended you to the point where you will no longer accept me. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Not even Satan. He is Hasatan, the accuser. He can't bring any charge against you, and don't be fooled by him and what he tries to tell you. Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. We were justified the moment we accepted his son's work on the cross of Calvary. All right, verse 34. Who is he who condemns? 
Well, who can condemn? That's the question. Only God can condemn. The devil cannot condemn anything. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? The book of Hebrews goes so far as to say that because he makes intercession for us, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. And that does not mean, I want to make sure that you all understand this, this does not mean that we can go up and say, I claim this in Jesus' name. That's arrogant. We don't claim anything. We come boldly to that throne of grace, not fearing him. But when we get there, we get down on our face and we make our petition. And we say, Lord, I would like this. We don't claim anything because when it doesn't happen, all we've done is brought disgrace on his glorious name. All right. Um, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. For the sake of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what happens to us. You can kill Christians all day long in this world. The people of this world can. They can come against us. Nothing, nothing can take away God's love for us. Nothing can separate us from, us, from him. Yet in all things, in all things, and I will say this, a lot of times you'll hear people say that every all in the Bible means all, and that is not true. Got to be careful and you got to take everything in context. But in this case, in all things means in all things. It is 100% non-exclusive. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, any created thing. There's only one thing that is uncreated, and that is God. And therefore, anything that is less than God cannot separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that when times get difficult, when times get burdensome on you, when Satan is bugging you, when other people are telling you you've lost your salvation. Don't listen to people like that. If you have called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it is done. It is finished. All right? Great words from a wonderful God. We'll go ahead and read the 87th Psalm, and uh, then we'll get into a couple other things before we uh, get done today. All right, Psalm 87, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the people, this one was born there, Selah. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, all my springs are in you. Now, yes, that's speaking of the earthly city of Jerusalem, Zion. This one was born here, but it's also speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem. And when we call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Lord records this one was born here. We are born into the new Jerusalem. Even though it hasn't been realized yet, it is eternal. We are God's sons through Jesus Christ. Wonderful, wonderful things. All right, we got a uh, this day in history before we get into our sermon. And today is, as I said, it's uh, December 2nd, and uh, it's our first uh, sermon in the month of December. 
And in 1804, Napoleon was crowned Emperor of France at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. And we know the uh, uh, immense life of Napoleon Bonaparte, and most people uh, studied him in school, at least most older people. I don't know what they study anymore. But um, anyway, does anybody here know that the last words that Napoleon's wife said to him every time he went out to battle? Anybody know? She said every time he went out to battle, don't get blown apart, Bonaparte. All right. 1823, U.S. President James Monroe outlined his doctrine opposing, opposing European expansion in the Western Hemisphere. And you all know of the Monroe Doctrine, if you're of any age at all. Once again, I don't know what young people are taught anymore. But I can tell you that that was in 1823. And in 2008, Barack Obama has completely turned that around. And he is trying his best to bring Europe to America. And we can't learn the lessons is that the things that we have tried to get away from are being brought in here now. All of the socialism and communism and the wars and death that have occurred over there are being brought into our nation. And we're going to face all of the same trials that they have because of the decisions that are being rendered right now. Anyway, that was 1823. And then in 1859, a guy named John Brown, real hero, although a lot of people really slander his name. He was a militant abolitionist. He was anti-slavery, and he was hanged for his raid on Harper's Ferry the previous October. So it's December now. The previous October would have been about a year and three months. Um, so this is John Brown. If I went to uh, preach at all 50 capitals, and while I was in Texas, I'm sorry, in Kansas with my wife, one of the paintings on the wall of the Kansas um, uh, State uh, Capitol building is a picture of John Harper, the same guy. And he's, I'm sorry, John Brown. And he's got his uh, a Bible in one hand, and he's got what he's called the Breacher's Bible in the other hand, which is his rifle. It's this very famous picture of him. And uh, anyway, he... Uh, uh, left there. He went over to uh, Virginia, Harper's Ferry. He uh, killed a bunch of people in his uh, zeal for getting rid of slavery. And a year and a couple months later, he was hanged. And he was one of the impetus or the, the, the genesis of the, the uh, what am I saying, the Civil War. So he is a very famous figure in American history. And I've got a point to make about him in a minute with another person I'll mention. But in 1901, Gillette patented the KC uh, Gillette razor. It was the first razor to feature a permanent handle and a disposable double-edged razor blade. And in, uh, what was it, October 19th of uh, 2012, Charlie Garrett hopefully used a double-edged Gillette razor for the last time in his life. But we'll see how that goes. And uh, in 1942... A self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction was demonstrated by Enrico Fermi and his staff at the University of Chicago. And this was done, you know, obviously they had different names for it, like I think it was a metal metallurgical class that they were claiming it was when in fact it was uh, developing the nuclear pile. It was done under a squash court. And because of, you know, the Russians were intercepting things about this, they actually said that it was done under a pumpkin patch because they took the word squash, not understanding the game, but pumpkin. Um, but uh, that is where it happened, was under the squash court at the University of Chicago. They had no idea what was going to be the result of this. They did have safeguards to shut this thing down, but they didn't know if they were going to melt the earth. They, it was really a wondrous thing that these people developed. And uh, obviously, we're still using it for good and bad purposes today. But that was in uh, 1942. 
And then in 1970, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, began operating under its first director, a guy named Williams William Ruckelshaus. And uh, yes, I agree with the establishment of a environmental protection agency. We had rivers up in you know uh, Michigan that had actually caught on fire. I think it was Michigan. They were burning because of the filth and stuff that's poured out there. But like all government agencies, this has gone insane. They now are limiting the rights of American citizens over, you know, a, a rat, a type of rat that lives in, you know, a swamp somewhere. Some crazy stuff. So our rights are being taken away because of things that they are determining. And they're also following this insane thing called global warming, which there's no evidence for it. I'm sorry. If you agree with global warming, you need to do your research. There, it, what this is, is it's a humanistic approach to solving the world's problems. By saying that global warming is a problem and that we are going to ruin the world, it's saying that God was incapable of foreseeing what we would do with his world and that we have to fix what God cannot fix. I'm sorry, that's not the way it is. If God wants this world to be burned up and it will be someday, it will be burned up. And if he wants it to keep going for 20,000 more years, it's not going to be because of knuckleheads like this. So please understand that this is not something that even is remotely uh, coherent with biblical doctrine. All right. Then finally, in 1994, in Pensacola, Paul Hill was given two life sentences for murdering a doctor and a security guard outside an abortion clinic in July of 1994. That was five months later. Okay. Now, what he did was wrong. He killed a person, a doctor and a security guard in a zeal to do away with abortion. What we should be doing is doing away with abortion, not killing people to do it. We're not going to solve anything by that. We need to work within the parameters of the government to get rid of this abomination. But my point about him, five months after he, was, uh, after he committed this crime, he was sentenced to two life sentences. And this guy that I mentioned earlier, John Brown, who did this thing up in Harper's, uh, Harper's Valley or Harper's, uh, what was it, Harper's Ferry, he um, was uh, caught and then he was sentenced to death and he was hanged within a year and three months. Does anybody know what's bothering me about this? Anybody know uh, that guy, uh, Major Hassan, who shot all those people in uh, Texas years ago, Fort Hood, Texas? He's a major in the United States Army and he is still hasn't been tried, convicted, or executed for his crimes. And I got to tell you what, this is directly because of the policies of Barack Obama and our United States government. And we have got these people down in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, that have been there for years. They have admitted to cr committing these crimes. One of them, even that uh, crazy guy, I don't remember his name right offhand, but he says, I'm the one that cut off uh, Pearl, Daniel Pearl's head with my own blessed right hand, he said. He's admitted to it, and he's asked to be executed, and instead of doing that, they want to bring it up here and make a show of it for the world. And i got to tell you what, this is a disgrace. It's an abomination. What Hassan should have gotten, he should have been taken immediately to an, a facility where he should have been tortured until he too told everything he knew, and then he should have been executed right then and there. I don't care what anybody thinks about that. If you don't like it, turn off the video or the door is right over here. It is a disgrace to our nation, and it's a disgrace to the Bible that says that we are not to be uh, failing in our justice, but to be quick, because if we don't, then the people of the nation will also see that, and they won't fear. And that's a biblical tenet right there. It also says in uh, the book of Job that uh, when wickedness, when the wicked rule the land, uh, the judges are blinded. That's a little bit of a misquote, but guess what's coming? We're going to have blind judges to these things. We already do to a great extent. 
I, you can tell I'm very upset about this. I was thinking about the, this morning, and I'm just very upset about it. So to get over my uh, wrath and to get into something far more beautiful, let's go to uh, our sermon today. I'll read you the verses. It's uh, Genesis 24, verses 12 through 28. And uh, today's sermon is entitled, Rebecca. All right, Genesis 24, verse 12. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let your pitcher down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I also will give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew water for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels of gold. And she said, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. And moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord, and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth to my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me uh, to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. May the Lord speak to us through his word. The great theologian, John Wesley. Does anybody know what John Wesley, what denomination he started? It was the Methodist denomination. He was the founder of Methodism. He and he had a brother named Charles Wesley, who is a great Christian hymn writer. He wrote hundreds, if maybe even thousands of hymns that are still sung in churches around the world today. Uh, these two of them, that were such great men of God in our eyes, would render their decisions. And I want you to listen to what they did. They would render their decisions, major decisions, theological decisions, or in the case of uh, going to America to be missionaries for a short time. They went to the Georgia area to be missionaries. They made their decisions by opening the Bible, and the first verse that came to their eyes, that's what they would make their decision on. And when this type of thing didn't work, they would turn to drawing lots. And in fact, John Wesley, his whole life carried around lots with him that he would throw to make all of his major decisions. The Bible, in this case, they put their finger down there and they look for a verse. The Bible doesn't give me what I want, so now I'm going to try dice. These types of superstitions were very common with him, and they deviate from sound biblical practices. In one instance, John Wesley decided to attack the Calvinist theory of grace. And what that means is John Calvin came up with theory of God's grace, and he published it. Another guy many years earlier, uh, the 1500s, uh, named Jacob Arminius, came up with a theory about grace. 
and they're contrasting to the extreme. I got to tell you this, Arminius is not correct, but um, yeah, John Wesley decided that he was going to attack Calvin's theory of grace, and in 1739, he preached on and published a passionately Arminian sermon entitled Free Grace, and he did this only after seeking a sign from heaven and drawing lots. He made his most most important theological decision based on throwing dice. He also did this when he decided on a wife. He didn't marry one woman because the lot said no, and later he married another woman, and the lot said yes. And if I remember the biography that I read on him years ago, he actually probably was sorry he threw that second lot because I don't think he got along with his second wife or that, that wife that he did marry that well. I may be wrong on that, though. But today we're going to learn more about how the Holy Spirit works in our own lives and what his role and what his function is. We can get a, a lot out of today's story, and we would be remiss if we didn't attempt to learn from the pictures that God has put into it. Our text verse for today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he'd seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God directed Abraham's servant to find a wife for his son. In the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit directing God's people in the spreading of the gospel in order to search out a bride for his own son, Jesus Christ. We need to live in such a way that we are always ready to be filled with and respond to the Holy Spirit as he directs us and need others that are in need of this good news. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of three thoughts today is that the Spirit directs God's people. In our last sermon, we saw Abraham call his chief servant, and he asked him to swear a vow to obtain a wife for his son Isaac. He directed him to go to Mesopotamia, where his family and his wife came from. And look for a wife for Isaac from that area. The servant was instructed to in no way take Isaac back to Mesopotamia, but the woman that decided that she would marry him would have to come by faith without seeing her husband. The last verses that we looked at said this, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia in the city, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. This is where we begin our verse or our sermon today is with verse 12. Verse 12 says, Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, this is Eliezer sitting by the well, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. The servant has arrived and he's sitting there by the well. What he does here is absolutely vital to the mission, and therefore it is the very first thing that he does. He prays. He prays in the name of the Lord. He acknowledges the Lord's authority over Abraham and that he, in turn, is subservient to him. He then asks for success in his mission, which is on behalf of his master. In other words, this guy is not praying for himself, but for the mission which he has been sent on. I don't want to scare anybody away here. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for yourself, and there are times in the Bible when other people pr do pray for themselves. But Charlie Garrett, me, I personally find this a very hard thing to do. And the reason why is that if I belong to the Lord, 
then whatever I do is meant to bring him honor. And so when I pray about something that involves me, it is always under the premise that it should bring glory. Man, he is right over our head today. It's always under the premise when I pray that it is to bring God glory and not me. The Lord already knows everything that I want and everything that I need. And so I see asking him for something in prayer for myself is repetitive and pointless. If you understand the logic, God, I want you to be glorified. Use me. And if I'm doing that, then why would I pray for myself? Because he is going to use me to the best of what I need in order to bring him glory. However, like I said, I don't want to fr uh, frighten anybody here away from praying for yourself. No problem there. And I don't want to frighten you from praying in general. There are only three ways that we can commune with God. Actually, there's a fourth that I thought of this morning, which is kind of to be out in nature, but we're only getting general revelation. In other words, Hindus are sitting out in nature enjoying what God has created as well. Three intimate ways, specific ways of communing with God. The first is through reading your Bible. That is, that is the first and primary way of communing with God. The second is through being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is only available to Christians. All right? And it is not at all what most Christians think. Being filled with the Spirit in the Bible is what we call passive. The Greek the, the text of the Greek, it is passive. It is not active. In other words, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are sealed from the moment that you believe, that you profess faith in him, God seals you, and you have all of the spirit that you can ever get at that moment. However, the spirit can get more of you. Being filled is passive. It is not active. And it can only happen in a couple of ways. And it goes back to communing with God. By knowing your Bible, by living out what the Bible expects, and through the third way of communing with God, which is through prayer. And so Abraham's messenger does what each of us should do in all things. He should pray. And I want to give you an example of this. There's a person that attends church on the beach from time to time. She doesn't come very often, but it's funny, she showed up today. She has a daughter, and I know her personally. I've met her several times, and I don't think this daughter ever does a thing. And I mean anything without praying. If she's going to get in her car and drive to Publix, she is going to pray before she gets in the car. She is the most spirit-filled person that I know in the world. And she doesn't roll around in aisles and make funny noises. And she doesn't raise her hands in church and make all kinds of showing of herself. But this lady is in tune with God because she prays all the time. Paul says to pray without ceasing, and that means to pray without ceasing. And this is what she does. I'm sure that when she gets to a red light, she says, Lord, where, which way should I turn now? And that doesn't mean that she is not making these decisions on her own. She is. But she is, by praying, asking the Lord to make sure that what she decides is the right decision. Do you see the difference? It is not active. It is passive. To expect any good thing, anything good in our life to be accomplished without using the means of getting that thing accomplished is both stupid and it's arrogant. Why do you think I tell people to read their Bible all the time? Because if you want something good and you don't know your Bible, then how can you ask God for the good thing that isn't in accord with his wishes? How can we expect God to respond to our needs without stating them in a manner which is going to glorify and honor him? So in the future, I want everybody here and everybody on the video to do three things every single day of their life. Obviously the first one, I say it week after week, read your Bible. When you get up in the morning, read your Bible. And then when you go to bed, before you fall asleep, read your Bible. 
And if you're at the doctor's office waiting, because it takes, what, seven hours for you to be brought into the waiting room to the time you get the doctor, you got seven hours to read your Bible. And when you're at lunch and nobody else is around, sit there and read your Bible and eat your lunch. And when you're driving, don't read your Bible. Instead, listen to an audio Bible. But all the time, I want you to have that Bible going into you. All the time. Because if you don't, you are being irresponsible with what God has given you when you're asking for things in prayer. The second thing is to live out what the Bible instructs for you. That does not say, what I just read you, does not say live out what Charlie Garrett tells you, but to live out what the Bible expects of you. Because I may be wrong, and if I'm telling you something wrong, then you are getting bad doctrine, and now you are living your life in the wrong way. And you see this in churches all over. You might be seeing it right now. You have no idea, and so you need to check your Bible. All the time read your Bible and then live it out. And the third thing is to pray to God that his will will be worked out for you and through you for the others that you are praying for as well. By doing those three things, you will, like Eliezer, commit your entire life to the direction and the blessings of God. Verse 13, Behold, here I stand by a well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Notice that the servant acknowledges the Lord first, and he asks him for his petition to be granted. Then in this verse, he mentions the well where the women will come to. He doesn't wish from the well. He doesn't pray to the well. He prays to the creator of the water and the land from which the well was dug. Likewise, we are not to petition anything in, crea in creation with our prayers. Not horoscopes, not tarot cards, not having your palm read, we don't petition the sun, the moon, or the stars, and we don't wish upon a rainbow or pray to a figure of Jesus that shows up in a piece of ravioli. We eat the ravioli. We don't pray to it. There is no thing in creation that we are to offer our prayers to or bow to. Not Mary, not the saints, nothing but Jesus Christ, our Lord and God. Verse 14, uh, now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please, let you down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one that you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. These verses, which we're looking at in this story, are what we would call descriptive. In other words, they describe what is going on. They are not prescriptive, meaning they do not prescribe something that we should do or necessarily should do, I mean. He is at the well, and he is praying to God on behalf of his mission, which is on behalf of Abraham, who's living his life rightly under the Lord. And so he asks for a sign. When I say that this isn't prescriptive or prescribing what we should do, it just simply records what happened, not what we should necessarily do. There are many times in the Bible where people ask for a sign from God, and God provides it, and sometimes God offers one without being asked. But can anybody here tell me any difference between them and us. There's two reasons. The first reason is that we now have the Bible, which tells what happened then. So we have God's full revelation in our hands. They didn't have that. And the second is that if you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so he will illuminate his word to you so that you understand it if you're willing to read it. Except under different circumstances and for completely different reasons, the people of the Bible did not have the Holy Spirit until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were clothed with the Spirit. They were not indwelt with the Spirit. Because we have the Bible and because the filling of the Holy Spirit is available to us, then asking 
and I mean actively asking God for a sign, is presumptuous and it is sinful. This does not mean, though, that God doesn't give signs, but we are to understand them for what they are when he gives them, not when we ask for them. The Bible says that we live by faith and not by sight. If we go around asking for signs, then we're not living by faith, but we're trusting in the sight of a sign. A sign that is given when not requested still requires faith to understand that it came from God. The case here at the well requires special direction from God, which he didn't otherwise have. Unlike him, like I said, we have God's special direction in the pages of the Bible and in the filling of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul explains the difference between those who look for signs, those who live by the intellect alone, and those who follow what the Bible proclaims. Here's what he says. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says that we go by Christ crucified, and that is only recorded in the pages of the Bible. The message of Jesus is found there, and that's what we use. Not the world's wisdom and not a sign. Verse 15, and it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Enter Rebekah. Oh, wonderful. According to Abraim, listen carefully to what her name means. The meaning of her name denotes the tying up of cattle for their own protection, for the establishment of their home, and to keep them from wandering off. So within this name lies the notion that individuals are placed together by some higher authority or someone smarter than they are. Hopefully the rancher is smarter than the cattle, and he's doing these things for the cattle's good, the good end of that cattle, and that's what's happening here. This account is the perfect fulfillment of her name. God, in his wisdom, sent Eliezer, her to Eliezer, even before he had finished his prayer, in order to fulfill his plans for all of the people of the world. It's something that we need to think on every single time that something happens in our life. Have you ever prayed for something? And it happened very quickly after you prayed for it. I can tell you, my mom will testify to this. When I first met the Lord, I read the Bible every day. I read it once a week and I'd start again. And I'd come to passages and I'd say, Lord, I just don't understand this. And I know that I need to know what this means. And I would say, Lord, please just show me what it means. And within one hour, I would watch something on TV, Adrian Rogers giving a sermon, and he would preach on that verse that I, nobody has preached on in the next 10 years since I've known the Lord. I've never heard anybody bring that verse up. It would happen immediately or within a day or the next morning. It would be an immediate answer to that. And that happened, I used to call it confirmation. It would happen so often that the Lord was confirming his word in me. But have you ever prayed for something for a very, an immensely long time, and it finally came about and you realized that when it did come about, it was the fur it was the absolute perfect time for it to come about. And if it had happened when you started praying for it, 
it would have been terrible. God is infinitely, infinitely wiser than we are. He knows every single thing that happens is because he planned for it and he is directing it for our good. This is even true with a pretty young girl who's walking up to get water from a well at evening time. So intelligent is God that speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he says these words, it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. At the time that God determines to fulfill his word, it will happen as surely as the sun is going to rise in the east over there. As the Geneva Bible says about this particular verse, God gives success to all things that are done for the glory of his name and according to his word. Although we haven't come to the end of this story yet, we can already guess that Rebecca is the girl that is chosen by God for Isaac. And because she is the granddaughter of Nahor, Abraham's brother, we're going to learn something here that most people will never consider. Abraham was called out of a place called Ur, which is in the Chaldees, Ur of the Chaldees, and he traveled with his father, Terah, his brother Nahor, and his nephew Lot, down to a place called Haran and then into the Promised Land. Abraham's older brother, Haran, died back in Ur of the Chaldees. If you think this verse through, along with what we've already learned from previous sermons, every person that we've been dealing with is an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Terah is the father of Haran, Abraham, and Nahor. And he also had a daughter named Sarai, who became Sarah. Haran is the father of Lot, who is an ancestor of Jesus through both of his daughters. And then we have Haran, who is also the father of Milcah, who is Rebekah's grandmother. Nahor is the father of Bethuel, the father of Rebekah. And Abraham and Sarah are the parents of Isaac. So all of these people are in Jesus' genealogy, and they all come from one man named Terah, Abraham's father. Terah, his three sons, his daughter, and all of the others mentioned, all of them lead to Jesus Christ. This then is one of the most pivotal families in all of redemptive history. Verse 16, now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. Rebecca is noted as being beautiful. And I bring this up, very beautiful actually. I bring it up because there's absolutely nothing wrong with being beautiful and there's nothing wrong with others noticing that in others. In some denominations, it is almost scandalous to even note that a woman is beautiful and so they do their very best to look as plain as possible. You know who I'm talking about. Down in the middle of Sarasota, you've got a whole group of people called the Mennonites. Or you've got Amish. You've got other denominations that wear all the same clothes. They wear a bonnet, and they're all very plain looking. That is not what the Bible recommends. What it does ask is that whether a lady is very beautiful or not so much, that she carry herself with the dignity of a lady and not trust in outward adornments, but in the beauty of what God has given her. The next thing this verse notes is that she is a virgin, and it explains it by saying that no man had known her. To know in this sense, and you'll see this throughout the rest of the Bible, specifically is speaking of sex. This verse right here of Rebecca is prefiguring her as a type of the church. So we have in the last, uh, last sermon, we had Abraham as a picture of God the Father, and then we have the servant as a picture of the Holy Spirit, and Isaac as a picture of the Son. And enter Rebecca, a picture of the church. She's being prefigured in this way, and Paul explains it in the book of 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. 
What the Bible is speaking of in Rebecca in a physical sense is what Paul is speaking of in a spiritual sense. We are to be unknown in dealing with other gods. Anytime somebody gives an allegiance to anything but God, then we are committing what's called spiritual harlotry. We are not to do that. We are never to mix our devotion to Christ with anything else. Unfortunately, and I mean this sincerely, this message is all but lost to the Christian world today. We come to uh, the second half of verse 16. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. Rebecca, as I said, she's a picture of us, the Church of Jesus Christ. She knows where the water is, and she goes down to it. This well is obviously lower than ground level, and she has to descend to it to receive the water out of it. The symbolism here is seen in our descending to receive the water of life, who is Jesus, as we go to our knees in prayer in the moment that will change our eternal destinies. After we receive that water of life through prayer, something wonderful happens, and it's found in verse 17. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. If you were here, as I said, during last week's sermon, you remembered that the servant is a picture of the Holy Spirit. When Rebecca receives the water from the well, the servant runs to her. And in the same way, the moment that we receive the water of life into our clay jar, which is Jesus Christ coming into our physical bodies, the Spirit rushes into us and it seals us for the day of redemption. Here's what it says in the book of Ephesians. In him... You also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. After we are sealed, we belong to him. And Paul explains this mystery of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. The term that the NIV uses for that term, earthen vessels, is jars of clay. And that'll give you a picture of her with this jar of clay in her hand. Just as Rebecca filled her jar of clay, we are also filled. And both come from the water of life. One is phys physical, because you can't live without water. And the other is spiritual, because you cannot spiritually live without Jesus Christ. Everything we are reading about here is pointing to Jesus and to our relationship with him. It is the spirit which leads us to him, and it is the spirit who calls God's people. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is the spirit does call God's people. Verse 18, so she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. The bride of Christ, the church, isn't just a beautiful virgin lazing around until the Lord comes. Just as Rebecca is the carrier of the water from the well, the church is the carrier of the water of life, which is the message of Jesus. The church is the one who carries this message to others, either directly or by supporting those who do. If you remember from last week, the camels and everything that they carry are a picture of the gifts which God has given to his people. Her drawing water for these camels is a picture of our willingness to serve those who bear the gifts of God. She is the church, and the church has people that can do anything that the world does. There are people who preach, and there are missionaries. There are people who 
can build buildings and there are people who clean those buildings. There are camels and there are people who water the camels. God has appointed everybody to do something. It is unthinkable that people go to church on Sunday morning and do nothing more for Christ throughout the week. At Church on the Beach, it may seem that we have fewer opportunities to serve than at other churches, but this is not so. We have people that we can invite to come, as I say, every single week. And we have an offering bucket over there for anybody that can afford to give an offering. We have people that we can tell about the great news of Jesus throughout the week. And we have people who can help carry stuff back to the truck when the service is over. If you know Zach, who comes every couple weeks, he carries stuff out for me every single week. We have people who are on the Internet, and they can get this video after I publish it, and they can share it with other people. If you're on Facebook, you can put it on your wall. If you get it by email, you can take it and you can send it out to other people. This is getting the message of Jesus Christ out to other people. There are people who occasionally bring things for other people to eat. Kelly Carlin is a champ at that. She brings, she's got fruit trees all over and she brings in buckets of this stuff. And then my wife sits here during the entire sermon and eats the whole bucket of fruit. So this is, this is things that we can do for other people. Whatever your gift is, Use it like Rebecca used hers. Use it with diligence and to the point of completion. And one more thing about this verse. Remember that the servant is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Rebecca said to him, as we should say to the Spirit, and if there's nothing else you get from this sermon today, I've mentioned this once and I'm going to mention it right again. She says, drink, my Lord. As believers, we already have all of the Spirit that we are ever going to get. However, the Spirit can get more of us. Despite what charismatic churches teach, the Bible does not ask us to say, come Holy Spirit. And I say that because I sat in a church down on uh, I-75 a, a year ago, and there was a guy who was the father of the pastor of the church, he used to be a pastor, and he's sitting there, annoyingly through the entire sermon saying, come Holy Spirit. He said it a hundred times, and the Bible never says that. Instead. It says in the Bible that the Spirit says, come. The more we offer to him, the more we will be filled. And so Rebecca offers to him. As I said, it is passive. It is not active. Verse 20, then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all of his camels. Camels drink a lot. And I didn't know this until I, I decided to do a study on camels for this sermon. This was not one trip to the well. It was many. One camel that has been on a journey like this one will drink 25 gallons of water. There are 10 camels, so this would be 250 gallons. If her jar, and I'm just guessing, held three gallons of water, that would be about 25 pounds because water is 8.34 pounds per gallon. I know that because I was in water treatment for 20 years and that number is stuck in my head. Multiply that times three and you're about 25 pounds plus the jar. So this would take her about 80 three trips from the well to the trough in order to fill that those camels up with enough water that is about 2080 pounds of water plus the weight of the jar for each carry and she's got to raise the water up before she fills it this girl is no slacker even if she only gave him half that much it would be 1040 pounds and that is probably much more than any person here including myself would do after dinner tonight with the exception of maybe Kelly Carlin. Rebecca serves until the job is complete, and this is what we are asked to do as well. There is a world that is full of people who need the water of life, and there are millions of jobs within the church that need to be accomplished. Rebecca did not stop until the job was done, 
and we are to continue on until our job is done as well. And a piece of trivia for you, because I grew up mistakenly believing this, camels don't store water in their humps. The water is stored just like us in our bloodstream. It hydrates us. The humps are storage for fat when there's no food available. And when there isn't food, then the fat is used for their body. And that's when the hump will shrink. Verse 21, and the man wondering at her remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. The word translated here as wondering at her is used only this one time in the entire Bible. And so it's translated differently in different versions of the Bible. Some people say he gazed at her. Some say he watched closely. Some say he looked steadfastly. One says that he was astonished at her. There's another word with the same root as this word, and it means to twirl to giddiness like a little child would when they go around in circles. Adam Clark, the great scholar of ages past, his comment when I read it was so funny on this verse. I want to read it to you. He said, and he was so lost in wonder, speaking of the guy at the well, and astonishment at her simplicity, innocence, and benevolence, that he permitted this delicate female to draw water for 10 camels without ever attempting to afford her any kind of assistance. I know not which to admire most, the benevolence and condescension of Rebecca or the cold and apparently stupid indifference of the servant of Abraham. Surely they are both of an uncommon cast. In the New Testament, Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit. In Greek, the word is present imperative. That means right now and without a doubt, imperative. Okay, And because every moment of our life is in the present, that means to be filled continuously. It means to keep being filled. Just as Rebecca is continuously filling her pitcher, the stream of water is going in and out of it. It's continuous. Just as the stream of the Spirit is to be in our lives. And does anybody remember? I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud. The three ways that we can be filled with the Spirit. Read His Word. Live according to the way that God has asked us and to pray. Those three things are going to allow us to be filled with the Spirit continuously. And that brings us to our third thought today. The Spirit gives gifts to God's people. Our first thought is that the Spirit directs God's people. Okay, he directed Rebecca to her appointment with destiny. And then the second thought was the Spirit calls God's people. He called Rebecca to be the one. And finally, after the call is made, the Spirit gives gifts to God's people. So it was, verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels of gold. One ta once this task is done, the man pulls out a gold ring. Some translators are going to call this a nose ring. Some are going to say it's an earring. But I want you to know that the word is singular. And women, even back then, wore two. So it's probably not an earring. Some say it's an ornament on her head. Any of these could be right, and we can only speculate on which it is. He also brought out two bracelets of ten weight each. You can still go over there to India and the Middle East, and you can see women wearing these type of adornments. And the ones that this servant would have given to her would have been very valuable. It was a great amount of money for the work that she did. Likewise, we will receive a great reward for any work we do for Jesus Christ. The Spirit is the one to give us all of our spiritual gifts, and they come as we grow in our walk with the Lord. If you read your Bible, and this is important to understand, you will receive the gift of discernment. And I was thinking about that this morning, is that if you go onto like a, a Christian, uh, you know, a discussion board, or even on Facebook, they got some Christian discussion boards. Everybody is a specialist. 
Everybody, I don't care what, especially with prophecy, everybody's out there pointing fingers at each other and saying, you don't know what you're talking about and you're a heretic when they have never read their Bible through one time, much less 10 or 15 or 20 times. You will never get the gift of discernment in biblical matters without knowing your Bible. So please read your Bible. And then as you witness to other people, you will eventually get the gift of teaching. It's not automatic where the first time Charlie Garrett walked up and said to somebody, oh, can I tell you about Jesus? I had my foot so far down my mouth I couldn't even speak. But eventually you learn how to watch their eyes engage if they're receiving the message or if you need to change tact. You will get that gift. Other than the gifts that we naturally have from birth, these things have to be developed. And the Spirit will give them graciously as we grow in our Christian life. Likewise, the rewards for the work that we do for the Lord will be great. There is nothing that we sacrifice now that will be forgotten or that will be left unrewarded by him when we meet him face to face. All debts will be paid, all everything will come out, and we will be satisfied with what comes at the presence of the Lord Jesus. I assure you of that. Verse 23, and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? What seems obvious is that the Lord provided exactly what the servant wanted. He provided a beautiful bride for his master's son, but he needs to make sure that this is not a false sign. And so he asks who she is, and he immediately follows up with the second question. Do you have room for us? There were no inns at that time in the Middle East. And this is very similar to what you'll see in the country of Japan. I spent six years there almost to the day. And in Japan, they have a substitute inn, which is bringing people into your house. Over there, it's called Ryokan. And I can assure you, it's a great way of traveling the country. It's a great way of meeting very nice people because they want more guests. And you also get exceptional food because these people eat with you. And they're not going to eat garbage, so they give you the best of the Japanese food. The servant is hoping for a place to stay, and he's waiting for good news about her family line. If she is the right girl, staying in her home is, home is only going to make her journey much, or his journey, much much uh, more conducive or much easier. Verse 24, so she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feet enough and room to lodge. In his response to the question, whose daughter are you? She responds with her father's name. Bethuel means daughter of God. And so she says, I am the daughter of the daughter of God. It's an interesting play on words, but it again points to the church. Bethuel is a very unusual name for a man, but because he is Rebekah's father, and they are key to bringing in the nation of Israel, we have a picture of the church as the daughter of the daughter of God. This family, which is so heavily entrenched in the genealogy of Jesus, openly welcomes the servant in for the evening. They have plenty of straw and feed and room to lodge. Verse 26, then the man bowed down his head and he worshiped the Lord. Her sudden appearance, just as he finished his prayer, was certainly directed by God. Her willingness to do exactly what he had prayed for was also certainly directed by God. And her words to him now assure him that even this is directed by God. Exactly the spot, exactly the fulfillment of the request, and exactly the right family line. All of it has the sure sign of God's divine hand upon the journey. And so the man who is overwhelmed by God's gracious hand bows his head and he worships. And he come to verse 27. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. 
Today's first verse said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Now at the end of this journey, the servant uses the same words in praise of the Lord for fulfilling the petition. What we can learn from this, even if this is just a descriptive verse, it's just describing what happened, is that for every blessing that we receive, and especially those we ask for in advance, we should stop and praise the Lord. Unfortunately, way too often, we forget to show gratitude at the end of the same journey that we prayed for help in at the beginning. I'll give you an example. Facebook, I see how many prayers a week, hundreds probably, that come onto Facebook. I, I need prayer for this and I need prayer for that. And after it's done, one out of every five people will say the Lord met our needs. Praise God. It's very rare. Whether we start a journey, which is an illness, or a college education, or a family vacation, or anything else, we always remember to ask God to bless it, but we need to remember to ask him or to praise him after he does bless it. When the trip is over, thanks and praise is way too often forgotten. This servant was faithful to stop and to praise the Lord, and it would be right for every one of us to do exactly the same thing whenever we have the resolution to one of our problems. Verse 28, so the young woman ran and told her mother's household all these things. If Rebecca is a picture of the church and she's run home to tell her mother's household, then shouldn't this be a picture of us telling everybody else about the wonderful dealings of God? Not just the people that are in her family, but also the people we work with, the people we socialize with, and ultimately, as Christians, don't we have a debt to the Jewish people to take this message back to the well from which we sprang? In all, the story of Rebecca is the story of the church. We have a story to tell, and it is of the greatest wedding which will ever occur. It will be a marriage to the King of Kings. And I'm sure everybody here today has accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but I still wanna say this in case you've never had that change in your heart. Jesus Christ came to purchase a bride from the fallen people of the world. And there's only one way that we can participate in that glorious ceremony, and that is to be like him, to be of his same nature, to be of his same flawless character. He's looking for a perfect bride. And in and of ourselves, we are imperfect and we are fallen. So what we need to do is we need to move from fallen Adam to the glorious Christ. And the way we do that is by putting our trust in him because he gave his life up as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. His blood covers us if we accept it. There's a transfer made from unrighteousness to righteousness and from unholiness to holiness. And it comes about by calling on him as Lord. It doesn't call on him by calling him you know, uh, my, my friend Jesus, he is our Lord. He is the one that can save us when we cannot save ourselves. Yes, he's our friend after we accept him, but until we do, we are at enmity with God, not at friendship with God. So if you've never asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and to make you whole and spiritually restore you, please do it today. This would be my prayer for you. I have a closing verse for us today from John chapter seven. It says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Next week we have uh, Genesis 24, for, uh, chapters, uh, verses 29 through 52. And it's entitled, A Work of the Spirit. 
It's going to be a lot of verses, but it's uh, very beautiful what is pictured there. It continues on our four-part sermon on Genesis chapter 24, and I hope you can make it and bring somebody along if you uh, have time throughout the week to uh, invite other people. And then, of course, we have one more thing before we take our communion today. It's our annual poem, or our weekly poem, and it's called The Virgin at the Well. The servant said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to the master of who I am. Please grant me my petition, I pray. Behold, here I stand by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw. Please send a family daughter. I beg for you in this matter to extend pity. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink that she in turn will respond as how I pray. Drink, and I will also give your camel some, I think. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know you have kindness to my master shown. And it happened, before he had finished speaking, he turned back, a girl coming with a pitcher on her shoulder, walking alone. Now the young woman was very beautiful to see, a virgin, no man had known her. And she filled her pitcher, this young beauty, as the servant watched in order to be sure. After coming up from the well, the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me have a little drink of water. Drink, my Lord, letting down her pitcher to her hand. She gave him a drink, which was refreshingly grand. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also. When they had have had enough, only then I think that back to my home is where I will go. So she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran back to the well to draw more water. She drew for all his camels before she took off. The servant sat watching this exceptional daughter, and the man, wondering at her, remained silent as she drew water, as water she drew, had the Lord brought him to where his journey was now through. So it was as the camels had finished drinking that then the man took a golden nose ring, half a shekel its weight, and two bracelets for her wrists weighing of gold ten, and he spoke to her, making his words straight. I would like to know whose daughter are you? Tell me, is there lodging in your father's house for us too? I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son. It was he whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, aren't you the blessed one? We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge for sure. Then the man bowed down his head and he worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham. He has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. In this humbly gracious to him I am. For as for me being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's kith and kin. So the young woman scurried home ever so quickly and told about all the things at the well where she had been. God directs her steps as he did in this story. He does it for our good and for his glory. Just as Rebecca had the most timely meeting, we too have a most important date it's coming when Jesus will call out his greeting. And when that day comes, won't it be great to meet our beloved Lord as we're promised in his precious word? Hallelujah and amen. Glorious Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful story of the obtaining of a bride, a beautiful young virgin for Isaac and how it pictures each one of us. And help us to live our lives properly as you have shown us in your word the way to deal with your Holy Spirit and to allow him to fill us by, by doing the things that you ask. Only then is he going to get more of us. We have all of him that we're, we're ever going to get. And we thank you for that. And we know that you hear every prayer, even when we don't pray the things that we 
know how to pray for. You are there and you are listening to the groanings of our life and the searching out our heart and our mind and our, our thoughts so that we can have what we want from you. You're a great God. You're wonderful in all your ways. Please bless each person here and each person that does watch this video in the future. Take care of them. Guide them to the rock that is higher than each one of us. Guide us to the rock of Jesus Christ and fill us with the living water, which is drawn from the well that is at your throne of grace. How we love you, how we praise you, how we just want to give you all the glory and the honor that you're due. And we do so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.